Despite our best efforts, accidental undereating is quite common in athletes. So I have brought in our resident health and nutrition coach with Holistic Endurance. Kirsty Taylor is a qualified health and nutrition coach currently studying her second year of nutritional and dietetics medicine. Kirsty is immensely passionate about gut health and hormone balance for the integration of optimal performance and wellness in athletes. Today's conversation covers all things nutrient timing, daily caloric intake, metabolic efficiency testing, and how to identify the symptoms of undereating and, of course, prevent it. We look forward to hearing what your favorite tidbit of knowledge was that you took away from today's episode. You've done all the right things. You followed the program, but you're tired and the results are hard to come by. You know there has to be a better way. Perhaps you're struggling to put the puzzle pieces together from training, recovery, nutrition, gut health, to hormone health and optimal wellness. Each season on Healing Grumpy Athletes podcast, your host, Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance, will help put the puzzle pieces together and ensure you can achieve and express your athletic potential holistically. Katie is a self-confessed hormone nerd endurance coach, wellness advocate, and triathlete, here to educate, inspire, and distill wisdom in an effort to shift up endurance norms. Grab yourself an almond latte, a herbal tea, or perhaps a red wine to focus your mind and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Healing the Grumpy Athletes. I have Kirsty Taylor, our health and nutrition coach from Holistic Endurance, and we are going to discuss the main issue that we see arise for athletes in a nutritional space uh, and quite commonly it's an unknown concern and it's uh, a bit of a surprise for athletes when we tell them that this is the area we want to focus on for them um, and that is the propensity to under eat as an endurance athlete whether that be through a dense nutrition or unhealthy nutrition it's very easy to do so first of all welcome to the show Kirst. thank you great to be here first podcast yeah yes it is <laughs> a mixture of excitement and nerves much like a race exactly like a race how do these nerves compare to your last or first triathlon um, I actually think I'm more nervous for this than I was for my first triathlon. Oh, there you go. <laughs> good. This is going to build some good mental resilience when it comes to anxiety and, and nerves for race day then. Exactly. I've got to smash out the next one. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so getting into uh, athletes and the tendency to under eat is probably the most common thing we see as a, a concern for athletes. No matter what we do with supplements and herbs and training modifications, if this area isn't addressed, they're not going to get very far. So why do you think it's such a common concern or pattern that we see? Uh, I reckon most of it, um, probably two main things that I see. One is a lack of preparation. So they're not actually sort of having food ready to go. Because unfortunately, with the amount of um, food that some of our athletes do need to consume and the kinds of foods that we want them to be consuming, it's not something that you can just pop down to the supermarket and grab. Um, They're needing to obviously we look at whole foods and stuff like that. So they do need to... Um, be a little bit more considered about what they're going to eat, how their days are running. Our athletes are busy people as well as doing their training. So just making sure that they're prepared, I find that is a big thing. The other thing is the um, that mentality that's still around, that eating 1,200 calories is what you need to do to lose weight. And that is definitely still, people are still so scared of those numbers and thinking that if they eat, they're actually going to put on weight, which we find the total opposite. If you do under eat, then your body is going to be holding on to absolutely everything it can because it doesn't know where its next meal is coming from. So they're probably the two main things that I find are still a problem. Yeah, definitely. And to add to that, I find it's sometimes a lack of awareness. Like they often athletes think they are eating enough um, and it's quite a surprise to them when we say no eat more especially when their goals are a fat loss or or weight loss it's a hard thing to wrap your head around so um, to those athletes that perhaps think they are eating enough but there's a possibility that they aren't what do you think yeah really true like and I think because a lot of the time they feel like 
they probably feel like they're eating a lot, but if you actually then, yeah, go and analyze it and sort of break it down a little bit more, um, yeah, it is a surprise. I mean, like, I've definitely been there myself where I've thought that, you know, I've been feeling really well and this is from, you know, someone that, you know, ideally knows what they're doing as such in terms of doing all this stuff, but it's definitely a pattern that it's one of those things that's like, I suppose, with your training, you do those checks along the way to make sure that you're still hitting all your performance markers same thing for your nutrition yeah it's quite ironic right like you and I have both had conversations with each other to assist each other with nutrition and how often have I said to you uh yeah (laughs) you need to eat more carbs and you've looked at my food diary and gone woman you're under eating um and that's with our knowledge and awareness like it can especially I think during a training build where the training gradually uh builds or creeps up uh as a coach we usually work with five to ten percent progressive overload each week so it can be somewhat unnoticeable but with that progressive overload nutrition should change too and so let's say over the space of four weeks someone's nutrition doesn't change but their training has that's where i find there's that recipe of, of the gap between enough nutrients yeah and then also looking at the type of training they're doing in that build in terms of feeling that correctly as well is also something that does need to be looked at on quite a regular basis. Yeah, and I think the and what you're talking to there is obviously with intensity we need uh, potentially more carbohydrates and nutrients overall versus lower intensity or lower volume. It would look different, which we'll definitely get into. Um, and I think that go ahead. They also they back up for double sessions too. Yeah. So often as it gets closer, they're doing a session in the morning and a session in the afternoon. You want to make sure that obviously you're getting enough fuel in to, I suppose, recover properly from that first session, but also making sure you've got enough energy, you've recovered well, all that kind of stuff for the second session. Because if you keep doing that and you're not fueling your body correctly, you're just going to just keep perpetuating the problem. Yeah, and then we add in the additional component of wanting to get fat adapted or maintain a healthy uh, fat metabolism uh, rather than being a sugar burner which when you're doing two to three sessions a day you you could uh, get all the right nutrients in uh, and ensure you get the right recovery but it might hinder your metabolic efficiency so it's quite a fine balance hence why you have a job uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, these aren't things that I think athletes can uh, generally figure out uh, on their own. I do think it requires a bit of a team and some testing. So let's start with some uh, ideas around what an athlete should look for as potential signs and symptoms of under-eating or not getting enough of the right fuel or um, percentage balance of the macronutrients. probably quite a few. First thing would be low energy. And I think that definitely needs to be looked at in terms of um, like how they're actually feeling and is the low energy because they've done lots of big sessions and stuff like that or is it like a perpetual thing and it's becoming more of a fatigue where, you know, they are having, even though they've come back from training, they've eaten, they automatically feel low straight away. Like that's a pretty big sign to me. Um, Sleep disturbances. Um, people probably wouldn't necessarily think that what they eat necessarily correlates to how well they sleep, but it's definitely a problem. Our body does all its rest and digesting of an evening, was we're asleep, if we're not fueling our bodies correctly, then it can't do that rest and digest properly, and that's where we our sleep disturbances definitely come in. Um, again, that links in with our poor recovery. They're finding that, you know, they those little aches and niggles and things like that keep coming in just generally those injuries um are becoming a little bit more common uh low immunity is definitely a big one so if you're starting to get just and not even anything it doesn't have to be little major things that can be like niggles colds flus a little bit of a persistent cough that won't go away um for guys and girls low libido but definitely for men in terms of their testosterone that's a pretty big one and for females the menstrual rate can't even speak irregularities um pms type symptoms those kind of things um lots of things Mm. yeah i'd say the number one symptom that 
or complaint that athletes come with that are under eating is actually weight gain or lack of weight loss. Yep. Do you want to speak okay. to that a little bit more and explain how that's possible? Yeah, well, when they're um, under eating, um, your body is basically thinking that it's not getting enough food. So it will definitely try and hold on to everything that you're giving it. So it's not going to allow you to potentially lose weight because it doesn't know where its next meal coming from. Even though you think you're feeding it regularly and enough, the fact that you are potentially under eating means that your body is not actually getting what it, what it requires. So it will actually hold on and can potentially then cause weight gain because it's actually an added stress onto your body from not doing enough, like from not eating enough. Mm. So if this um, is sparking some thoughts for athletes listening, what would be the first step to practically looking at whether they are under eating or not? Um, The best thing to do would get a basic food diary happening and actually write down what they're eating and in terms of quantities as well now i mean there are some different apps and stuff out there that you can put it straight in yourself and it will be able to spit out roughly how much um, you are eating and break it down for you but obviously if you've got a coach um, or someone on your team that's good with nutrition and understands it properly actually getting to them and having a look uh, in terms of what you're eating the timing of it and all that kind of stuff as well yeah, I think nutrient timing it has probably been a topic that's come up in nearly every episode of the podcast. So for, yeah. just for those who don't have the background on nutrient timing, because again, I would say that we get a lot of athletes come to us who have quite a nutrient dense and, and healthy nutrition habits day to day, but where they're going wrong is the timing of their food. So can you just talk to the principle of nutrient timing? Yep, so especially with us, with athletes that would be coming to us, they are looking at either becoming fat adapted or already on that path. So a lot of people do get scared in terms of eating carbohydrates, but we definitely need carbohydrates for that repair and recovery um, after sessions, particularly the long ones where we've had a lot of our and glycogen stores depleted we do need to get our muscle glycogen back up so we can actually those muscles can repair and recover ready for the next session so again we have a really good window straight after uh, we do our exercise that we can get those carbohydrates in to allow us to recover things like protein and stuff too is really important for recovery and again that's something that really has to be spaced throughout the day so we do need it straight after training but we actually also need it on a quite a regular basis because our body's continually breaking down and building back up not just our muscles but all our cells and stuff in our body so we do actually need that on quite a regular basis during the day um and in terms of timings of fat uh we need our fats in at every single meal because it basically helps with our nutrient density so we want to be able to obviously make sure that we're getting enough of our calories in but it also helps us with satiety so we're actually feeling full in between meals and we're able to actually go those longer blocks without having to eat which again helps us with our um, becoming fat adapted brilliant Oh, so my next query around, so someone's done a food diary um, and they've tracked their symptoms. I think one we didn't mention actually was um, muscle soreness, like quite persistent, like every day feeling heavy legs. I think that's a, a key one to take note of. And if anyone, um, if you utilize training peaks, you can track muscle soreness and hydration and all your recovery metrics in there and I'd highly recommend so you can start to identify patterns um, and prevent these uh, dips in performances that don't really need to be there. Yeah, I think people, when they think about that, they're just thinking about like injuries as such, Mm. not necessarily, yeah, those actual muscle soreness that sort of doesn't go away. Yeah, and when we see athletes get that nutrient timing right, it makes such a difference. Just this week, I've got athletes peaking for uh, Cairns Ironman and they're all saying, I feel so good, this is brilliant, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm recovering well. Uh, it's because they are diligent with their nutrient timing and getting their recovery right and, and balanced training uh, so they don't feel destroyed. Um, I think 
that's the key message that with the right nutrition and timing you don't have to feel like rubbish as an athlete and sometimes I think that culture of communal suffering (laughs) gets in the way it's like this acceptance of must be in pain or suffering (laughs) to prove yourself like go out for your ride come back and then feel pumped and energetic all day like that's how it should be yeah not napping all day god i remember those days i was useless (laughs) i couldn't even nap now if i tried (laughs) such a difference me trying to stick to 1200 calories a day and train 15 hours a week that was a recipe for disaster yes it is. if anyone knows my story from healing the grumpy athlete um that's certainly what led to epic burnout um but we digress so coming back to nutrient timing principles we utilize four different parameters for nutrient timing do you want to go through each of those in terms of um the different windows for like an intense session versus a long session okay so basically we look at sessions less than 75 minutes um, and you're probably looking at quite an intense session on that and when we look at intense sessions we're talking about um, intensity above our math heart rate so obviously anyone who's sort of been around holistic endurance for a while will know that we definitely look at math heart rate and Phil was on the podcast so you can head back to his if you want a little bit more information on that but or on the website um, again, I digress, but just so you guys know what math is. Um, For those not familiar with math, it's similar or equivalent to your zone two heart rate. Yep. Um, so once you've done that kind of training, so again, above 75 minutes and at intensity, you've got around three hours to get in that carbohydrate. So for instance, if you get up in the morning and you train, so let's say you kick off around that six o'clock time, um, your window is open for carbohydrate um, consumption till around nine o'clock. Sorry, I think you said above 75 minutes, but I think you meant under 75 minutes at high intensity. Under 75, yes. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. Um, Yeah, at high intensity. So you've got, um, yeah, you've got a three hour window from six o'clock when you start your session to nine o'clock to really get those carbohydrates in to assist with that recovery. And again, that is not going to then skew your fat adaption either. So you're gonna increase your recovery, but you're also going to make sure that you're staying in that fat adapted state. Yeah, when coupled with your quality proteins and quality fats. And fats, yeah. And again, it's the type of carbohydrate um, that you're having as well. Well, again, being holistic endurance, we always talk about whole foods. So we're talking about things like us, sweet potatoes, um, our quinoa, as those kind of whole foods. We're not talking about processed you know, junk. a loaf of <laughs> white bread. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we've got our sessions less than seventy minutes, but are at low intensity. Um, so generally, most of our athletes would go into this fasted. Um, and when we call fasted, it's either first thing in the morning or maybe they've had at least a four-hour break since their last meal. Um, and we would generally not a – you wouldn't need to have carbohydrates straight after a session like this. The fact that it was at low intensity, you would just want to fuel with some really good um, – proteins and fats afterwards um, to make sure that you were optimizing your recovery and of course lots of vegetables yeah we should preface that vegetables are still carbohydrates when we're talking about nutrient timing and refueling we're just talking about those high energy whole foods um, that Kirsty mentioned the quinoa the potatoes and starchy veggies or banana or something like honey or rice malt syrup so they're the kind of foods that um, when we're talking about refueling uh specifically to high energy carbohydrates yeah and um with obviously although like i said our green veggies and stuff like that definitely do have carbohydrates in them the amount of extra benefits that you get from the micronutrients and stuff in those definitely outweighs the little bit of carbohydrates you get so we always want to build our plates with lots of veggies to start with as well yeah okay so that's the under 75 minutes low intensity so zone two or below uh go in fasted and no need for additional carbohydrates after yeah cool 
So for our longer sessions, so that's anything above 90 minutes. And again, that would have um, in some intensity, so above our math, or lots of volume. So again, those long rides that you know are above sort of that three, four hour mark, that is what we would consider a little bit of intensity as well. So um, basically it's open for the duration of your session and then how long you've actually done that intensity for. So for instance, if you've gone your long ride for three hours in the morning, you've obviously got that three hours to be having some um, carbohydrates, but then another three hours approximately after that to be making sure you're recovering. And it's really important to that you are, even if you are fat adapted, you are still getting enough nutrients and energy as you're out on those rides. Again, to make sure that you can keep going, or runs, I shouldn't just say rides. Um, and then again, refueling when you get back from those. Yeah, okay. So during long sessions over 90 minutes, still fueling during, but also having the high energy carbohydrates for recovery after. Um, and how would an athlete ensure they still get fat adaptation in that example? Um, so you would, again, when you're actually out on your ride. Um, or run. It, or run. Yes, I keep, I keep saying ride. I actually would probably run more than I ride. Um, you would, again, it's when our athletes do work with us in terms of ensuring, like, I suppose, they're feeling right. But you would want to start that session faster. And it, again, it would really come down to um, what kind of fuel you would need to utilise, how you're kind of feeling and stuff like that. So in terms of obviously using something like a freedom fuel as you were out on the bike, um, that actually allows you to have some of those carbohydrates, but again, mixed with the fats and stuff like that, just to make sure that our body's using it without peaking it and swinging us out of fat adaption. Yeah, cool. Um, th then the other thing I usually recommend uh, in those situations is I, you're breaking up there. So just to clarify, starting fasted or with a fat black, for example, or a bulletproof coffee, uh, and depending on the athlete and their fat adaptation status, staying fasted and just having hydration for the first 45 minutes to 90 minutes, depending on where they are in their fat adaptation journey, and then starting you know drip feeding their freedom fuel like you mentioned for the rest of the ride yeah i mean they can also i suppose it's not necessarily free fuel it's that's the the things that they eat but i just find you know sometimes things like a bliss ball or something like that which i know some athletes like having oh that's brilliant just very well <laughs> um i i no i actually really like it while riding i mean running's a different story i think um the likes of V-Fuel or Freedom Fuel would be my choice on a run uh, and most athletes would be the same. But riding, I've yeah always used homemade bars or bliss balls or protein balls uh, while riding, particularly in a base phase. And I think that's really important that athletes acknowledge that with sports nutrition, definitely don't necessarily want to use it all year round in your training and um, – just utilize the, the performance-based gels and products when you're in that eight to 12 week window of race preparation as opposed to 52 weeks of the year yeah. and that's where real food used as fuel on the bike is quite golden I, i've known athletes to take liver pate which is brilliant for hormones <laughs> oh, yeah actually would be quite nice yeah <laughs> just have a buffet uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Um, it's also really good too on those longer rides if you are potentially trying different things, not necessarily doing the same thing all the time because yes. then you can actually see how your body responds to that. So when it comes to making your race nutrition plan, you actually can already kind of see how those different things will affect you and how you feel afterwards. Mm, and what you digest well and what you can chew easily enough or what your preference is. Yep. Definitely. Um Okay, so that's fueling during and longer sessions over 90 minutes while still staying fat adapted. I think that's one of the mistakes I've seen a few people make in terms of wanting to get fat adapted. They go in fasted and they might end up doing three or four hours faster than just water or electrolytes. It does take quite a while or an 
you know, an advanced metabolism, I like to call it, to be able to do that. So please don't do that off the bat. Like that's going to create that additional adrenal stress that um, Kirsty was talking about when we started chatting. The body's going to go into survival mode and and not be able to, uh, one, recover well enough, but um, you're not going to get those fat loss results at all. Especially if they do have that little like peaks of intensity and stuff like that during those longer sessions they definitely um yeah it's even if you do have quite an advanced metabolism that intensity over those longer periods of time if you're doing three hours and you've got like some big hill climbs and stuff in it your body will definitely need some additional fuel to keep it going yeah absolutely and i think again it's so individual there's not a blanket way to do this there's not a blanket you know grams per hour it's so individual and we're going to take go through a a case study shortly with all the numbers and the metrics and help listeners um guide through how to you know navigate this and find out their personal metabolism so on that line of thought um you and i conduct pathology testing for a lot of athletes do you want to go through some of the key pathology markers that indicate that there's a perhaps a presence of under eating or some physiological stress uh yep so um looking at just the breakdown of like a general bloods so if you're looking at um the red blood cells um in terms of different markers that can show us whether or not there is potentially um, some iron depletion. And again, we would then always recommend that our athletes do iron studies because that's obviously the best way. But you can, yeah, just t- in terms of having a look at those red blood cell markers, because obviously our red blood cells carry our oxygen around our body, which gives us the energy to keep going and delivers all the nutrients and stuff that we need from our blood into our muscles. So that's a really good way of looking at it. Also, white blood cells. So a lot of people instantly think of those um, for infections and stuff like that. But having um, those slightly even to a higher end or a lower end in some different cases can show us um, whether or not there is just some periods of really like chronic low-level stress, which I find unfortunately a lot of athletes when they get their bloods come back with and that's a really good indicator that there is some kind of underlying stress going on in their body that we can hopefully help fix generally just with their food Hmm. um another one that we ask to get is zinc i find that's always depleted in athletes as well so zinc and iron um, and vitamin D. A lot of athletes think just because they're outside exercising that their vitamin D, D status will be fantastic. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, the other one is, I find, uh, again, only occasionally, um, is the um, carbohydrates, not carbohydrates, sorry, cholesterol. Because cholesterol is such so many different roles in our body in terms of like building up all those cell membranes it helps as an antioxidant particularly in females it does all our hormones it's got such a big wide-ranging job that if we're putting a lot of stress on our system that cholesterol really has got a lot of work to do so again if we're not fueling our bodies correctly our body starts producing that and that can sometimes be the bad cholesterol so uh, yeah, I do sometimes get a little bit of a a higher level of that low density cholesterol where generally their overall cholesterol is good but that's just a little bit inflamed which is a nice marker to have a look at as well yeah okay and again just a good reminder to athletes to regularly test pathology six to twelve months uh, as a baseline that's with n- nothing going wrong you know and no um, adverse symptoms or poor performance or ill health or hormone imbalance so as a blanket if you are pursuing endurance sport you should absolutely be testing pathology every six to 12 months especially if you're doing multiple large intense events or big seasons i just think it's crucial for our longevity and unfortunately we have seen the back end of too many people uh, who haven't done that and taken the precautions um and unfortunately it just yeah it means they 
end up stopping the sport or becoming miserable or pushing through and, and never reaching their previous performances again. Yeah, it's also um, probably really good to do if they've, you know, at the start of their season too. So you actually can get on top of potentially anything before you start adding that volume of training and stuff on. Yeah, well, in Australia at the moment, we're coming into what most athletes would consider their winter base with the exception of those doing, uh, say, cans, Ironman or half. That's where most athletes are at, which is a great opportunity to get all these things right, whether it's nutrition, fat adaptation, boosting your immunity, gut health. Now's the time, not during your key build for a race uh, once we get into summer season. Yeah. Okay, so how do we go about, we've mentioned rectifying the under-eating by nutrient timing, and we spoke briefly about nutrient density and building the plate. Can you just give an overview of that ideal plate and what it should look like? Even though uh, Ellie from The Natural Nutritionist covered this recently in one of our episodes, um, I just want to cover it again. Yep. Um, we would always start with two cups of vegetables and again for all those nutrients um, sort of I know probably Ellie would have said it too um, but the amount of different nutrients and stuff that we get out of those um, green leafy vegetables and basically as much color as you can so getting all that onto your plate um, is the key to start Um, protein you generally want it the size of the palm of your hand and again, that would vary. Guys would probably almost need maybe the size of their hand. And again, it, it, these kind of things are so very varied per athlete, which is why it's so nice and to work individually with an athlete to see how they're actually going, how they're feeling, what they're doing, all this stuff. Um, and so a serve of protein. We look for two serves of fat and then depending on whether or not they're in their post-training window, we would look at adding a serve of those really nice whole food starchy veggies. Okay, perfect. Good overview. I think uh, the, the main one that gets missed commonly with athletes doing their best efforts in that regard of building their plate is getting in two cups of veggies or plant-based foods at breakfast. Yes. And uh, I think that one gets overlooked. You know, they will often report, yeah, I'm having plenty of veggies or salads at lunch and dinner. But where to really step up your game is taking that opportunity to get the extra antioxidant plant-based um, foods and vegetables in at breakfast. Even our, some of our like, biggest, I suppose, advocates of our fat adaption um, I find some of those athletes still even struggle sometimes to get those two serves of fat in, which again is the quickest and easiest way to get your um, nutrient density up, but also that energy requirement up too. So yeah, two serves of fat, some people, especially particularly maybe if they are starting, can seem a little bit overwhelming. But again, just in terms of all the benefits that we get out of having that fat on our plates, it's definitely something that we really strongly push for in our athletes yeah and i understand that for some you know this is quite different to what we were told 10 20 years ago and it was different for me too and it it took a couple of years to wrap my head around um being advised to have more fats um and it's not until you i guess you personally anecdotally get to experience the difference from a, a mood energy and satiety point of view that you can get complete buy-in so for those perhaps that this information is new to and uh you're used to eating six meals a day or every two hours and snacking all the time um just be open and curious to the idea that it doesn't have to be that way uh, and you can set your metabolism up to be more efficient particularly as an endurance athlete you don't want to be um a predominant sugar or carbohydrate burner um so on that topic let's go through the case study that we wanted to talk about who had done the metabolic efficiency test um so for those unfamiliar a metabolic efficiency test is done in a laboratory setting i do plan to get on an exercise physiologist who conducts the test to give you guys more information so stay tuned for that 
As part of the test, there's an exercise element <clears throat> where we look for what's called your crossover point. And that's the heart rate or power output at which your body utilizes carbohydrates as its preferred fuel over fats. And we use that crossover point to help with race pacing, um, training zones, as well as a race nutrition plan. So that's one element of it. And the other is looking at like the basal metabolic results. So what an athlete burns at rest when it comes to fats and carbohydrates uh, and what their caloric needs are at rest first at exercise. Um, before we go through this example, I guess I want to really preface that <clears throat> uh, you've probably read my articles or heard me speak before about um, that calories in versus calories out doesn't equal weight loss and it's not as simple as that. So as much as we're going to give some calorie examples here, we want to really stress that it's not everything. You know, there's a lot more to put into the picture and we don't want to get bogged down in just um, the, the micro numbers, but they do give us information and we don't necessarily advocate for counting calories every day, but to track your food and, and do a bit of a food diary, say, three, four days of a fortnight every six weeks to check in on how you're going is a really valuable way to check in, but you don't need to be uh, pedantic about it, I guess. I think the really good thing with um, the metabolic testing as well is I suppose we can say to an athlete that they're potentially not eating enough, mm. but having that data actually to sort of back that up, a lot of athletes, whenever they get that test back, have just gone, Oh, really? Um, yeah, so I always find that quite interesting. Yeah, me too. To get done. Yeah, it, it, sometimes it can take months of us saying to athletes, you know, you need to eat more, you're under-eating, not eating enough, that's why you're not recovering, you're not uh, getting the body fat results that you're after. Um, but it's not until these numbers come through, the hard evidence, uh, that someone's mind gets that buy-in and there's a real shift happens. And I, I totally understand that. Um, I'm certainly a numbers person. And I was adamant I was eating enough and my results certainly showed that I wasn't. And um, it was amazing, you know, eating more food and, and getting leaner. It's a, it's a nice place to be. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, if someone told you you had to eat more, I don't think I would ever have a problem with that. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm very happy eating more sweet potato, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. As for the case study, so we have a female athlete. Uh, do you want to go through her profile for me? Um, yep. Working full-time. Um, young child. Um, Symptom-wise is... Um, very fatigued, um, definitely has some work stress as well, was um, quite like, um, I suppose, not a high powered job as such, but um, quite a constant kind of job that she needs to be on the ball for. Um, there was um, niggling injuries all the time, that feeling of heaviness, like you said, like not necessarily overt injuries that stopped training, um, but definitely um, made getting up and going out for um, runs and bike rides and stuff like that, less enjoyable. Um, finding it hard to get to sleep and stay asleep as well. So waking, not rested. Yeah, I suppose that's probably... And they had an iron deficiency, yeah? Yes. Yep. Yes, an iron deficiency. So the metabolic... Uh, actually, the food diary, first of all, when we did an example to get the specific macro breakdown and caloric intake was sitting around 1400 a day on average yeah yeah it was about that yeah and when we got the test results back their resting metabolic rate which is their minimum requirement on a non-training day came back at 1800 yeah so this athlete was actually eating 1400 with training yeah so yeah that's um a pretty big indicator about how potentially that was stressing her body so she was under eating what she should have been eating based on not doing any exercise yet she then she was putting her body through those sessions mm. yeah and look long term that's one it's going to deplete hormone health um can impact thyroid health um neurotransmitters and mood and gut like 
you know, it's one thing to do it short term, but long term it can be very detrimental. So it's important to step up and figure these things out. Yeah. Now, their resting metabolism was 50-odd percent fat burning at rest. Yep. Um, Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, well, we would ultimately like to see our athletes at around 80% and above to be fat adapted. This athlete did come to us not uh, obviously doing fat adaption, so it's definitely still on the journey. But again, at 56%, um, it is still quite low. And ultimately, at rest, burns pretty much the same amount of fats as they do carbohydrates. Yeah, which can be quite problematic. And for those new to this concept, um, do you want to just sort of paint a picture for what that would look like on a daily basis or the impact of of being such a a low-fat burner at rest? Uh, uh, The terms of of, um, what energy requirements they would need in terms of the breakdown of um, their fuels would be quite different. So, I mean, insurance that they were fueling their body correctly for their training and also um, just general recovery, they would need predominantly more carbohydrates. So if they're looking at becoming fat adapted, they're probably thinking to strip out those carbohydrates. But if your body's actually requiring that carbohydrate just to function, that's when the patterns of fatigue and sort of that muscle heaviness and stuff can come in because you're, I suppose, almost fighting against your body um, in doing, I suppose, eating those lower carbohydrates until you actually get your body fat adapted. Yeah, because I think there's um, this trend or some blankets, you know, recommendations out there to eat under X amount of grams, whether it be 50 grams of carbohydrates a day or whatnot. Um, In this case study, this athlete, was requiring and burning at rest 190. So if they went from 190 to 50. That's huge. Like you can see right there, like if your body was needing that amount of anything, whether or not, you know, I know we're talking about carbohydrating, but if you're depleting your body of something it needs by that amount, it's going to have a detrimental effect. I mean, obviously we'd like, it's more efficient for our bodies to be fat adapted and we definitely want to move her into that state. But going straight from 190 to potentially like 50 or 80, I'm not saying that she was eating that low, but mm. stripping it down that much if you were just, you know, online and reading something and that's how you become fat adapted, you could actually end up doing yourself more damage. Mm. Okay. So in this scenario, we've got an athlete that's not quite fat adapted enough, but they've got this high, high-end carbohydrate need. What's your first step? Um, we would definitely look at putting back some carbs in her diet, which I know most people would be like, oh, my goodness. But this athlete definitely needs to have those carbohydrates back. Wouldn't be putting them back at 190 because we do want to obviously start progressively making that shift. So we'd look at doing it at around that 150. And, again, we would look at putting the bulk of those carbohydrates in that post-training window. Mm, perfect. So what that kind of training would be and we'd look at putting it in there we'd also look at then the general things that start to make our athletes more fat adapted so getting out and doing that fasted training and again because they're a carbohydrate burner we would probably start looking at letting them have those sort of you know fat blacks or some nut butter and stuff before the training just as they're making that progression across and again probably those carbohydrates the rest of them in the evening so their body has them to do all that lovely rest and digesting of an evening and again would also help them sleep great with their thyroid hormones yeah perfect and kind of good things yeah and then you can do a progressive evolution of um as they become more fat adapted through their tracking their metrics and symptoms and so forth you can gradually reduce that carbohydrate need as they become more fat adapted which is only going to improve mood and energy, which is golden. Yeah, I think we had that other athlete that did that MET testing too that actually had made quite a good progression from where they were originally burning their carbohydrates and definitely switched that around, didn't they? 
Oh, goodness, yeah, that before and after is exceptional, and I do plan to get that athlete on the show to tell the story from their perspective of how they made that happen. I think they started as a 40 50% fat burner and now in the 80s over a period of nine months-ish, uh, which yeah, is excellent. I think excellent. that's a really good um, point to make too. It doesn't happen straight away. Uh, we need to do these things progressively, make the changes. And, I mean, that athlete has done that while also, you know, making some really good progressions in their training. Oh, so, huge. And also uh, they haven't had well, – I think the biggest achievement or notable is it didn't shift for a while. So, you know, the first six months there wasn't a change. That fat adaptation didn't come together and then it did. Uh, so it did take a while because they've been doing endurance for so long as a carbohydrate sugar burner. Uh, the initial phase, her body was quite resistant and then it, it came to fruition thereafter um, and rapidly. So what's exciting is a race plan now looks very different to a year ago uh, and much more manageable to actually get that amount of fuel in. That's probably something we haven't spoken to, but um, Nathan and Shearer and I touched on it in terms of when you're a fat burner, you don't need so much exogenous fuel on race day, so lessening the chance of GI distress and the logistics of carrying kilos worth of food and fuel. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even that fear training, you go out on those longer rides and if you yeah don't have to take as much, um, so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... Under eating, anything else we haven't covered to preface? Um, not overly, just in terms of, I suppose, generally if you are under eating, you are probably also missing out on some really key nutrients that you need as an athlete. So we did touch on things like the iron, um, like your zinc, but then also things like magnesium and calcium all those nutrients that are so essential um, for athletes to make sure that they're getting in. Under eating often means that you're also missing out on some of those key nutrients. So what we also like to look at is obviously the big macronutrient timing in terms of making sure we're getting enough carbs, proteins, fats in, and then the right times. Then also making sure that our athletes are eating enough wide variety of foods um, to make sure that they're getting that in. And if they're is potential chance for some deficiencies looking at doing some um, supplementation short term um, to re I suppose instate those stores of anything that they've depleted um, and then look at I suppose maintaining that with their food yeah into... good point the supplementation yeah. needs to be a, a, sh- a, a short term plan um, yeah. while the nutritional needs and habits get into place to support the athletes athletes efficiently through real food um i forgot to mention this earlier when you brought it up but i've genuinely never had an athlete's pathology for zinc come back in the optimal range we would want it for an athlete ever <laughs> it, it does no, take case, I mean, like, yeah consideration i mean zinc for me is um i suppose one of those really underlooked things in general both medical pathology, but if you think zinc is required for so many reactions in our body, like it might break down, helps break down everything. So all our food and stuff that goes in, it all gets broken down and zinc is needed to do that. It also helps build everything back up. Now, if you think how much athletes are breaking down foods and all that kind of stuff, but also then repairing with their, um, you know, building muscle and all that kind of stuff back up, their bodies are doing that so much more than just the average Joe. Yeah. So that zinc is required. And a lot of the times um, it's not only low on a particular, you know, reference range, which I know Ellie spoke about in her podcast, um, but it's also low on, you know, an optimal wellness range. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think I've spoken too much about this in the podcast, but um, there is a difference between the conventional reference ranges and what we would look to for optimal ranges for athletes or a wellness range. We have to remember that the medical fraternity are looking for illness and that's what the reference ranges are based off. Yeah. And 
Uh, so if you've been to your doctor and you've been told you're quote-unquote fine, make sure a practitioner that uh, is looking at functional wellness ranges takes another look um, because they'll have a different set of standards. We certainly do. Yeah, I myself have been to the doctor and been told everything looks fine and I've looked at it straight away and went, no, I'll be doing something about my vitamin D, my zinc um, and a few different markers like that because they're like, no, they're in range. And I'm like, no, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, joy. Actually, I just thought of a key um, element that I find leads to under-eating athletes because we've got the the whole picture of under-eating, say, in in a day or over a week. Uh, I find where it easily happens, uh, particularly those training for, say, a half Ironman or Ironman where the training days are five to seven hours, that's a big chunk of your day where you're not having meals. Yes. So without even realizing it, you're under eating even though you might have fueled through that entire ride. Yeah, I think a lot of athletes forget that they have to fuel their exercise and then fuel the base of what they're doing. So going back to our case study, that was 1,800 calories that they were potentially needing for just at rest. So if then you're doing a six, seven-hour ride on top of that, you need to fuel that seven hours. Which isn't easily 1,000 calories in an average yeah. weight human. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, and again, you're going to get a little bit of that during your actual ride but you're not going to get all that in so yeah in terms of making sure that you're actually eating that back you may not be able to eat it all back on that day but then that's where the days are following yeah the next one for recovery yeah absolutely very good point all right well thank you so much for getting into this topic i think it's probably the biggest mistake we see or hindrance um and it's not a purposeful mistake people aren't you know doing things wrong it's just i think comes from what we've been told as essentially missed for many years around um low calorie equals weight loss or um eat under 1200 calories and you'll be sweet <laughs> it's been a very harmful message yeah, and that's definitely. yeah i think that finally the the industry is a shifting and a change, um, but it doesn't like the psychology of it is hard to wrap your head around when you've been told yes. something is true for ten or plus years. We've also, you know, athletes are working full time jobs, have families, and doing their training and stuff on top. Sometimes their nutrition and often. Um, I suppose your own nutrition is sometimes put mm. as not a priority at all and it is just a grab and go and so yeah it's not until I suppose someone the wheels fall off at these kind of things yeah or the symptoms start coming out that you can start putting all those um, pieces together prevention's much easier than a cure oh yes <laughs> amazing all right thank you Kirsty. tell our listeners where they can find you and seek any further advice or nutritional consultation with yourself well you can always find me over at holistic endurance so yeah any of the places where you would normally find holistic endurance is where i hang out facebook instagram website you can book in a complimentary consult with Kirst if you've got questions or you can book in a wellness consultation